History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the History of Persia. I'm Trevor Cully, and this is episode 105, The Life and Death of Philip II. Last time, we covered the early years of King Darius III. Artaxerxes IV was murdered by Bagoas the Elder. Bagoas the Elder was murdered by Darius III. Rebels in Mesopotamia, Egypt, and probably elsewhere had to be defeated. A Macedonian invasion led by the general Parmenion was easily dispatched when the Macedonian king Philip II was also assassinated. Today, we step away from the Persians for a minute to talk about their western neighbors. It has been a long time since I did an episode that was just about events in Greece. Last time we did this was just before Xerxes' invasion to get everyone up to speed on who Athens and Sparta were. Well, now we need to do the same for Macedon. They've been a player in our story ever since they were briefly conquered by Darius the Great, and their king, Alexander I, served Xerxes before the Persians were chased out of Europe. But they've never really been a main character in the same way as Athens and Sparta have been for the last few years. This is still a history of Persia, so I'm not going to go into nearly as much detail as I could for explaining Macedonian history. And if you really want it, basically everything of note has been at least mentioned at some point in previous episodes. The Aegean Sea just draws narratives together like that. Macedon emerged as a tiny kingdom on the Thermaic Gulf at the edge of northern Greece sometime during the Greek Dark Age as the Bronze Age transitioned to iron. 
According to their own histories, the kings of Macedon were descended from the hero god Heracles, also known today by his Roman name Hercules, by way of a Peloponnesian noble named Argias. This ties into the myth of the Heraclidae, sons of Heracles, who stormed through Greece and conquered the Peloponnese, giving rise to the Doric dialect and states like Sparta in the mythic past. Thus, the ruling family for all of Macedon's recorded history up to the current point in our narrative is called the Argiad dynasty, after that mythical Argias. Conveniently, well-documented Macedonian history begins with the arrival of Persian armies sent by Darius the Great to force King Amyntas I and his son Alexander into submission. Alexander I served Darius and Xerxes as High Park in the years leading up to their invasions of Greece, and slipped free from Persian control as the Delian League purged Persian influence from the European coast. However, Alexander I and his successors leveraged their position after Persian rule to conquer neighboring Thracian tribes and expand their territory, including the initial conquest of the city of Pella, which became the new Macedonian capital. From there, they had ups and downs and got involved in Greek and Thracian wars on and off over the next century or so, just like everyone else in the region. Through all of it, they remained an important but not exactly powerful regional state, primarily benefiting from access to massive gold mines. Their language hovered right at the edge of a very distinct dialect of Greek and a closely related separate language, and their monarchy and war-prone culture made them pariahs to the rest of the Greek world. They were Hellenistic, but not exactly Hellenic in the eyes of their southern neighbors. This fraught relationship between Macedon and Greece can be seen in the events where we first encountered the future Philip II on this show. Back in episode 89, we encountered Macedon in the context of the brief dominance of Thebes over the rest of Greece. The Thebans intervened in their northern kingdom during a period of significant unrest. Philip's eldest brother, King Alexander II, was killed in 368 BCE. A regency was put in place for their middle brother, Perdiccas III, and the 14-year-old Philip found himself taken back to Thebes as a political hostage. There, he got to see one of the greatest states of ancient Greece at its height, and its military, and more importantly, its military's differences from the rest of the region that drove Thebes to the pinnacle of Greek power. Philip's guardian in this period was Pomenes, commander of the Theban Sacred Band, their elite army of 150 homoromantic couples. His personal tutor, theoretically preparing him to become a competent Theban ally in Macedon, was Epimonidas, the greatest Theban commander and political leader of the day. Philip's time in Thebes was actually brief, just three years before Perdiccas III overthrew his regent and summoned Philip back from Thebes. However, historians put a lot of value on those three years, as they should. 
there is a lot of development between the ages of 14 and 17. It would be more surprising if Philip's experiences in that time didn't alter his worldview. His time in Thebes left gears turning in young Philip's head for years to come, thinking of ways to improve upon his own people's military. That military was locked in an on-and-off forever war against the Illyrians. It's less about a specific grievance and more just two countries ruled by warlord kings sitting next to one another. Illyria encompassed most of modern Albania and the Adriatic coast of the former Yugoslavia. The Illyrians were more culturally distinct from their neighbors than Macedon, though without much of a written record, we don't know much about them. In 359 BCE, King Perdiccas III of Macedon went to war with one of the numerous Illyrian tribes and was killed in battle. Fortunately, he had the sense to appoint Philip regent for the infant prince Amintas before leaving. When news reached Macedon that Perdiccas was dead, Philip looked around and must have thought something along the lines of, well, if I'm gonna be regent for most of the next 20 years, I might as well just be king, right? Sorry, kid. To his credit, the newly crowned King Philip II didn't smother his infant nephew in the cradle. Amentus got to grow up as a prince of Macedon, but no longer in line for the throne. Given that he had no memories of anything else, Amentus doesn't seem to have resented his uncle on this. This is all stuff I've talked about in brief already. But from there, Philip took the Macedonian army and led them to Illyria, where they absolutely slaughtered their opponents, even though Philip was already married to an Illyrian princess. However, with a victory under his belt, Philip II set to work completely restructuring the Macedonian army. He drew inspiration from the likes of Epimonidas's tactics and Ephricrates' innovative equipment during the Corinthian War to build a unique military force in northern Greece. Up to this point, the Macedonians had used pretty typical Greek armies for the 4th century BCE, with a slight emphasis on cavalry that their prominent southern neighbors just couldn't have because the northern terrain was more suited to horses. They were also probably early adopters of light infantry peltasts, just because they were closer to Thrace where that fighting style originated. This is one of the few times in history where seemingly minute differences in military technology and organization are actually massive historical changes all at once. At this point, the standard Greek hoplite kit, or panoply, was already pretty stripped down from its archaic archetype, as it had existed around the time of the Persian invasions. The classical ideal was a phalanx of citizen warriors with large hoplon shields and bronze armor composed of a helmet, breastplate, greaves on the legs, and bracers on the arms. There's actually a strong possibility that this version of the panoply never existed for anyone but the wealthiest war leaders at the same time as the formal hoplite battle formation. By the time we start getting good sources on this stuff, 
the majority of art and literary descriptions tend to only depict partial kits. The bracers, in particular, seem to be relics of an earlier stage of warfare, when the arms were more exposed than they would be fighting in a tight formation with massive shields. Likewise, by the mid-5th century, we stopped seeing greaves, because that same formation really limited the risk to a soldier's legs. As iron became more common, we can assume the slightly weaker but significantly cheaper metal replaced bronze in most cases, and by the end of the 5th century, the metal breastplate was largely supplanted by linothorax, a sort of gambeson made by layering sheets of tightly woven linen and loose fibers like animal hairs or grass in between. You'd be surprised how good that design is at stopping penetrating attacks, especially when properly made. It's almost impervious to sword and knife cuts. This was all in service to a cheaper model, which allowed more men to serve as hoplites, but over time, even the rich adopted the more fashionable, lighter, and more maneuverable gear. In any case, they were typically armed with a 6-foot or 2-meter spear called a doru, and a sword as their sidearm. During the Corinthian War, the Athenian general Iphicrates tried to encourage a new model taking inspiration from Thracian peltasts and Egyptian pikemen to abandon the hoplon in favor of a smaller peltast shield, which provided more maneuverability to wield longer Egyptian pikes. This seems to have been adopted by Athenian marines and possibly some components of the Theban army, but not widely overall. No sense in beating around the bush, Philip's reforms are just too famous to avoid. Philip ordered his armies to adopt a very Iphicratean model. The armor was already pretty bare bones, so it stayed more or less the same. Linothorax on the torso, metal helmet on the head. However, the Hoplon shield was abandoned en masse in favor of the Peltast, now affixed with a leather strap to sling the shield over one shoulder, leaving both hands free until the Peltast was needed for defense. This extra free hand was important because the Doru was replaced by a new weapon, the Sarissa. These gargantuan pikes were so long that they had to be carried in two separate pieces, attached with a screw in the middle just before battle. The early designs under Philip doubled the length of the Doru, making them 12 feet or 4 meters long, and later Sarisai reached as long as 20 feet or 6 meters. They were obviously unwieldy in any context other than a well-structured phalanx, where soldiers simply had to raise, lower, and thrust. But that was more than enough. Think about how phalanx warfare worked. Whether Greek, Egyptian, Phoenician, Babylonian, or anyone else, the standard infantry spear up to this point ran between 6 and 8 feet long. The two sides would charge or march up to one another and attempt to stab and intimidate their opponents from as far away as safely possible. Not that this always worked, but it was the safer approach. Well now, Macedon's army was a bristling wall of 12-foot pikes, which required more practice and training, 
but allowed Macedonian phalangites to strike from twice as far away as their enemies. They could realistically wipe out the first two or three rows of enemy troops before even being in harm's way. The Peltast shield also allowed them to be somewhat more maneuverable, though still limited by the sheer size of their weapons. Still, without the interlocking shields of a traditional hoplite formation, the Macedonians could simply raise their weapons to point skyward and turn on the spot without much fear of running into one another. This new class of warrior was termed Pez Hatairoi by Philip, meaning the Foot Companions. Despite the game-changing nature of the Pez Hatairoi, Macedon's elite core actually remained closer in style to the traditional hoplite. These were Philip's Hippaspists, or shield-bearers, who seemed to have been the formal bodyguard unit of the Macedonian king, similar in role to the Persian immortals. They were Macedon's shock troops, equipped in the traditional hoplite fashion both for the prestige and because they were more likely to be the ones sent into close quarters fighting where the short spears and larger shields still presented an advantage. Macedon also represents one of the earliest powers to experiment with heavy and light cavalry, as well as shock cavalry charges. We saw the earliest expressions of this in the Battle of Kinaxa, where Cyrus the Younger's and Artaxerxes II's personal guards were armored and prepared to charge in on horseback for a melee. This stands in contrast to the very lightly armored and missile-weapon-focused horsemen of the Persian invasions, or Megabyzus's rebellion in Syria. The core of the Macedonian cavalry were the Hetairoi, or companions, who were occasionally armed with javelins like the Persians, but more often with the Zeiston, a sort of early lance with blades affixed to either end of a 10-foot or 3.5-meter shaft. The Hatairoi were armor similar to their infantry counterparts, and thus were less fully armored than the Persian equivalent, but they did become the first intentional cavalry unit formed for the purpose of charging directly into an enemy infantry formation, rather than wearing them down with missile fire. Interestingly, though, the exact schema of light versus heavy cavalry was still being ironed out. The podromoi, literally those who ride ahead, were Philip's lightly armored and more maneuverable scouts. But they were equipped with an even longer pike, closer in length to the Sarissa than the Zeiston. In addition to scouts, they acted as true shock troops, charging the enemy at full force in a sort of single-use hard strike before retreating, merging the traditional Persian missile tactics with the Macedonian Hatairoi's equipment. Then, of course, there were still light infantry and missile infantry, almost in a more Persian style than Greek compared to the Peltasts, who often acted as support troops. As Philip conquered, he incorporated the typical hoplite and cavalry tactics of his subjugated foes, but the Macedonians were working along this newly formed Macedonian phalanx-centered army and we will get into what he did with that army 
right after this short break. Shout out to Claridon for supporting this episode and providing me with samples. Allergies. There are a few things that make me feel worse more frequently. There are a few times a year when the trees bloom, pollen turns everything yellow, and my sinuses just seem to stop working. I feel miserable. I can't sleep without tossing and turning every few minutes. Luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. I've been taking Claritin D for my worst allergy symptoms for probably 18 years, and it's an absolute game changer. I can fall asleep and still feel like I am able to breathe. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear. Use as directed. With his kingdom settled and his military reforms underway, Philip began taking advantage of the ongoing conflicts in the northern Aegean, specifically the Thracian Civil War and the Athenian Social War that were both playing out in 358 and 357. We discussed this in episode 96. Philip exploited these conflicts to capture much of western Thrace, including the gold and silver mines of Amphipolis, with false promises to Athens. When Athens tried to support a Macedonian rival for power to get Amphipolis back, Philip simply withdrew his troops from the city and declared it autonomous, leaving a loyal government in place, but gutting the Athenian claims about breaking the king's peace and occupying an Athenian ally. Domestic resistance to Philip within Macedon all but collapsed. 357 also saw Philip conclude an alliance with his fellow northern Greek kingdom of Epirus, marrying a princess from that kingdom who went by many names in her life, but is best known for the epithet she took the next year, following Philip's triumph in the Olympic Games when his chosen racehorse and jockey finished first. This woman was known far and wide as Olympias, a strong-willed witch queen, known for practicing strange rural rites involving snakes and odd goddesses, which sounds suspiciously like a variation of Ishtar. The royal family of Epiros also claimed descent from the ancient Greek hero Achilles of Iliad fame. Thus, when Olympias gave birth to a son shortly after the Olympic victory, 
she made a point to impress on that boy that he was descended from her own ancestor, but also his father's heroic ancestor Heracles. She may also have dropped hints that she had not actually slept with Philip at all, but rather Zeus, king of the Greek gods in disguise, making the newborn prince Alexander son of Zeus, maybe, and descendant of both Heracles and Achilles, two of the most famous heroes of all Greece. It must have been exhausting to be a Macedonian soldier in these early years under Philip. Their kingdom was still small, but they were marching all over the place. In just two years, they conquered swaths of Thrace, Illyria, and Thessaly, all under the guise of assisting their allies and installing supposedly independent leaders who all understood that they had to be loyal to Philip and Macedon above all else. If they failed to uphold that requirement, well, wouldn't you know, Philip would suddenly have new oppressed allies in their cities that needed his help. So Philip II spent most of the 350s consolidating his rule in the Chalcidiches and the Thracian coast, where the Chalcidikian League was able to put up organized resistance and Athenian support came as often as the Athenians could afford, attempting to break Philip's hold on almost all of their traditional trading partners in the north. There was no luck. One by one, the Greek colonies of Thrace and their indigenous neighbors fell to Macedon. Through it all, Philip slowly built up a Macedonian navy and improved upon his people's siege tactics. Only the city of Methone managed to hold out in the end. In the course of that siege, an arrow caught Philip II himself in the face, damaging his right eye, which eventually had to be removed from his head altogether. However, even Methone was only spared because Philip got a much more enticing invitation to a party down south. In 356 BCE, conflict erupted in northern Greece, in a rare intersection of ancient Greek religious law and brutal realpolitik. One year earlier, the city of Phocis had sent farmers into an uncultivated plain just outside their formal territorial boundaries. Under most circumstances, this wouldn't really be a problem. Uncultivated land was normally free game in antiquity. At most, it would cause some arguing between the governments over which one of them was going to collect taxes on the newly settled land. However, this was no ordinary tract. This was the Kirhaian Plain, part of the territory of Delphi, the most sacred city in Greece and home to the great oracle of the god Apollo, which has popped in and out of our dealings with Greece ever since we met them in episode 6. By tradition, the Kirhaian Plain was uncultivated under orders of the city's patron deity. So when Phokis broached this traditional boundary, they found themselves in trouble with the Amphictyonic League. Unlike most Greek leagues, this was not a regional defensive pact, at least not in the same way as usual. 
It was the Panhellenic Council that governed Delphi to ensure a modicum of neutrality from the oracle toward all Greeks. Representatives from all around Greece came in and out of prominence in this league over time, and it was typically a pretty bureaucratic thing. The Amphictyonic League only had to exercise its military authority twice before, once in the mid-6th century and again in the mid-5th. The former was an isolated conflict over cultivation of the Kirhaian Plain, which saw the destruction of the eponymous city of Kirha. The latter was part of the prelude to the Peloponnesian War and saw Phocus try and fail to seize control over Delphi itself. Go figure, an unused tract of fertile land in a relatively weak but ambitious neighbor tend to cause problems. In 357, the Amphictyonic Council just followed standard procedure and told Phocus they had crossed a line and needed to pay a financial penalty for their blasphemy. No harm, no foul, just pay some restitution and get out of here. The thing is, Thebes had a majority of the seats on the Amphictyonic Council at the time, and in addition to fining Phocus, they used this as an opportunity to also fine Sparta for their occupation of Thebes 25 years earlier before the Corinthian War. The Phocian fine was excessive compared to their transgression, and the Spartan fine was entirely uncalled for and dubious under the League's charter. On top of that, the Thebans also pushed through a vote to formally denounce both Phocus and Sparta in the eyes of the god Apollo and his oracle, blocking them from Delphi until they complied with the fines. In all likelihood, the Thebans knew that their northern neighbors in Phocis and their traditional enemies in Sparta would both refuse to pay, giving Thebes a just cause to declare the third sacred war against either of them. This would present an opportunity for Thebes to regain some of its prominence, which was lost after the last Theban-Spartan war by attacking some soft targets. Phocis was small, Sparta was in decline, and few other Greek cities would risk siding with them against the Amphictyonic League, regardless of Theban politics. But Phocis had a trump card. At least according to legend, they had been the permanent heads of the League when it was founded, and were forced out at some point early in its history. This is totally possible given their proximity to Delphi. It's also entirely possible it's just an old Phocian myth about some grudge they had against their neighbors. Either way, the Phocian army marched in immediately, seized control of Delphi, and declared their city in charge of the League, intending to counter-denounce Thebes and provide religious justifications for their allies to send aid. Sparta just wanted to get out of their fine, and Athens didn't want Thebes to gain power again. So both quickly sided with Phocus. However, other Greek cities were hesitant after the Phocians raided the Delphic treasury to pay for mercenaries. 
This was the height of disrespect to the god Apollo, and you can see why some other cities that didn't have as much of a dog in the fight might be hesitant to join in the war, even if they didn't like Thebes. Regardless of any of the smaller cities, though, all of Greece's big power players were involved, so war erupted at once, initially focusing on the area around Phokis and Delphi, but expanding rapidly. The Thessalian League in northeastern Greece sided absolutely with the lawfully elected Amphictyonic Council, and therefore Thebes. They also had a long-standing rivalry with Phocis, which probably helped in the decision. The non-league city of Pherae backed Phocis and put up furious resistance to their Thessalian neighbors. So Thessaly sent a letter to Macedon asking for Philip to swing down and help them out with this whole Pherae business. Almost 2,400 years after the fact, you can still sort of see the spark in Philip's remaining eye when he received this request. Initially, in 354 or 353, Philip was caught off guard by the strength of the Phokian mercenaries. They not only repelled Macedon and the Thessalians from Pherae, but defeated Philip in the field twice. The Roman-era historian Polyinos suggests that the Phokians used catapults as field artillery, a rare tactic in the real world, despite what video games may suggest. Lobbing boulders into the tightly packed Macedonian phalanx and then charging would certainly have had a devastating effect if nobody had ever tried it before. It's not a trick that works twice, though. Philip gathered a large army over the winter, told the Thessalians that he needed them at his side to get focus out of their territory, and swept through the region the next year, pushing the Phokian army entirely out of Thessaly in the Battle of Crocus Fields, where the Macedonians went into battle wearing laurel wreaths to honor Delphic Apollo. It was a perfect tactical and propaganda move. Philip instantly became the great champion of Apollo, and had effectively occupied Thessaly in the process. He was declared Archon of the Thessalian League, essentially high king over the many petty monarchies in the area, supposedly by popular acclaim. But with the Macedonian army there in force, what choice did the Thessalonians really have? Philip began the process of reorganizing Thessalonian city boundaries and governments to try and soothe the traditionally competitive and fractious region into a unified province under Macedonian rule. However, that task would be left to subordinates, because Philip himself went south to chase the Phokians back to their own city. At this point, his march starts to look awfully familiar. After marching through his allies' territory in Thessaly, he occupied a few cities peacefully, sacked Magnesia, and arrived at the infamous Seaside Pass at Thermopylae, where he found it blocked by a southern Greek army on his way to link up with his own allies in Thebes. Yeah, if not for having to fight for control of Thessaly, 
this would be a near-exact repeat of Xerxes' march through Greece. But in this case, Athens, rather than Sparta, held the hot gates. Philip undoubtedly could have taken Thermopylae. Frankly, any educated Greek probably could at this point. But Philip wasn't equipped for a war with Athens at the moment, so he went back to finishing his accounts in Thessaly. Neither Philip nor his new Thessalonian subjects came back the next spring. With Athens now involved directly and his momentum broken, Philip saw greater opportunities to participate in the Third Sacred War by opening a northern theater instead of taking little old focus itself. It also allowed him to deal with two problems at once. One of the Odrysian Thracian contenders for their own throne had started threatening Macedon. Philip and his army struck out across coastal Thrace to deal with Amadokos. However, the other Thracian contender came to terms with Athens in eastern Thrace, and both Thracian and Athenian influence sparked a rebellion in the Chalcidikian League against Philip. So the Macedonian king slowly picked his way through his rivals in western Thrace, until in 349, Athenian reinforcements arrived at the rebel city of Olynthos. A two-year siege ensued, with a second round of Athenian reinforcements coming in 348, and a third scheduled to come, but delayed by inclement weather, long enough for Philip to take the city. To keep Athens busy after Olynthos fell, Philip hired privateers, mercenary pirates, to raid Athenian allies and colonies in the Aegean while he prepared to go south. The war between Thebes and Phocis had hit a stalemate, and Philip declared that he would go south, but not where he was headed. Phocis, Athens, and Sparta sent a gargantuan army to Thermopylae, including every man eligible for military service in Athens and 1,000 Spartan hoplites, which may have been almost every Spartan still eligible for citizenship at this point, due to their self-destructive property requirements. If the battle had happened, it would have been a major turning point in history, either expediting Philip's conquest dramatically or killing the newborn Macedonian Empire where it stood. Instead, focus ran out of money, no money means no mercenary payroll, means mercenary revolt. A military coup in Phocis restored a previous Phocian leader to power, and he told Athens and Sparta to go home because he was going to sue for peace and bring the war to an end in 346. Without an ally to actually support, Athens was forced to do the same, because if Philip had free passage through Phocian territory and allies in Thebes, he could walk right up to the Athenian walls unopposed, and Athens was really not ready for that. There was lots of talk about forging a common peace for all Greece once again, but utterly disingenuous. Philip's ambition was boundless, and the Athenian leader of the hour was the charismatic orator Demosthenes who utterly despised Philip. 
the piece of 346 was a stopgap, but it did have two notable effects. It officially ended the king's peace in Greece at a time when Artaxerxes III was too busy with Phoenicia and Egypt to take much notice. It also granted Macedon two votes on the Amphictyonic Council, stripped from focus as a punishment. The Amphictyonic League was one of the prime institutions of Pan-Hellenic culture, an organization for all Greeks. By allowing Macedon into the League, it signaled that Macedonia would be accepted as Greek rather than pseudo-barbarian. With Greece settled down for a moment, Philip went northeast again, marching off to deal with the remaining eastern Thracian king in a poorly documented campaign that saw the end of Odrysian independence, as both contenders were now vassals of Philip. It also marked the first time the Macedonian army marched to the Thracian Chersonese, but certainly not the last. Macedon had grown immensely in the preceding decade, and at this point, Philip began reorganizing his country. Not only did he need to create more logical and structured systems of governors, liaisons to new vassals, tax assessments, and the like, but he had a valuable opportunity to increase Macedonian food security. With large buffers all around the homeland, the Macedonians didn't need to concentrate their resources in rugged hill forts and mobile animal herds. Philip's son, Alexander, supposedly recollected later that his father brought Macedon down from the hills and into the plains. When he resettled portions of the population in more agriculturally productive areas, Philip greatly increased Macedon's population and security. The mid-340s saw Philip settle his eastern border with invasions of southern Illyria and Epirus, defeating the last hostile kings and tribes of the former and installing his favorite Epirote brother-in-law, and Alexander the Great's probable namesake as the new Epirote king. He finished out the decade with another campaign to eastern Thrace to annex the territory outright, and to celebrate this victory, he founded Philippopolis, the city of Philip, or modern Plovdiv in Bulgaria. With that, Macedon was functionally secure from the Hellespont to the Adriatic Sea. There was never much to threaten them from the north to begin with, at least not since Alexander I and Xerxes' time, but there was still a seething mass of unruly polis in the south. This brings us to events we've discussed more recently. 340 and 339 saw Philip besieging Perinthos and Byzantium, only to be rebuffed when the Persian Empire of Artaxerxes III started sending aid to the beleaguered city-states. In 339, Athens and Thebes rejected their peace treaties and attacked Macedon's allies. On his way home from the Chersonese, Philip actually decided to pull a Darius the Great and swung up north to cross the Danube and fight some Scythians for some reason, 
presumably a punitive expedition for raids into now-Macedonian-ruled territory. This was a poor decision. King Philip broke his leg in battle against the horse archers and had to delay his return to Greece for over six months. When he did return, the city of Amphissa was used as a scapegoat. Some Amphissians went to farm another of Apollo's sacred plains and successfully provoked a fourth sacred war, with Philip assuming control of the Amphictyonic League and marching south in 338. Athens and Thebes both feared Philip's rapidly escalating dominance and moved to oppose him. This time, they really did join focus in a defense of Thermopylae, which Philip expected. Evidently, nobody on the anti-Macedonian side had read Herodotus, but Philip had. That's the problem when your country's most defensible site is also the site of your most famous defeat. Once everyone knows these strategic weaknesses, it stops being quite so defensible. Nobody bothered to guard the mountain road that circumvented the pass at Thermopylae, so Philip replicated the Persian strategy from a century and a half earlier. He sent part of his army up the goat path and they popped out in the enemy's rear, turning the tight pass against its defenders for a slaughter. From there, he marched on Phocis, where he offered to undo all the penalties imposed on them at the end of the last war. Phocis joined Philip there, turning their army around to join the Macedonians on their way to Thebes. They faced off in the Battle of Chaeronea, on a wide open plain in Boeotia near the city of Thebes. Athens, panicked by the prospect of imminent attack, sent in their army full force to defend the Thebans as a buffer. Poor choice. The Macedonians and their allies, or more honestly, subjects at this point, crushed both of their opponents on the battlefield, effectively ending the Fourth Sacred War and setting the stage for Philip to demand whatever he wanted from whoever he wanted in Greece. This campaign also saw Philip's son, the 16-year-old Prince Alexander, take command of a cavalry unit and lead his way to victory for the first time. Greece was reorganized as never before. Long-dead cities like Plataea were refounded. Colonies were made independent of their mother city. All the other existing leagues and alliances outside the Amphictyony were dissolved and replaced by a single super league, called the League of Corinth. Corinth and other strategically valuable cities were required to host Macedonian garrisons. Members would be assessed for tribute payments to the league treasury controlled by Macedon. For all intents and purposes... Philip had just conquered all of Greece outside the Peloponnese. So naturally, he turned his attention to that squarish little peninsula next. What little remained of the old Peloponnesian League dissolved itself, and most of the Peloponnesian cities negotiated their peaceful entrance into the League of Corinth, 
I say most because Sparta refused to play ball. According to Plutarch, quote, And when Philip wrote thus to the Spartans, If I enter your territories, I will destroy you, utterly, never to rise again. They answered him with a single word. If. Oh, that's cool. Or it would be cool if I didn't know what happened next. This is one of people's favorite examples of Spartan awesomeness. It's a great example of the brief, witty, laconic speech and exudes we-can-take-em energy. If this exchange really happened, it was all posturing. A lot of pop history and misguided Sparta enthusiasts like to go straight from if to and neither Philip nor Alexander ever occupied Sparta. But they skip the bit in between. Philip invaded the Peloponnese, crushed the Spartans in battle, and ransacked Laconia unimpeded, but never bothered to actually besiege the city of Sparta, because it was a toothless backwater with an impressive but long past history. After beating Sparta back into the dirt, Philip had effectively subjugated everything of value in southeastern Europe, and he sent Parmenion to Anatolia to create a beachhead for a larger invasion of Persian territory with the full force of the Macedonian Empire. While Parmenion was away, Philip started and dealt with some family drama. Upon returning from southern Greece, Philip supposedly fell in love with, and definitely married, the niece of one of his generals, a woman named Cleopatra Eurydice. We are about 300 years away from THE Cleopatra, but it's just a Macedonian woman's name. So is Eurydice, for that matter. Brace yourself for dealing with a lot of Cleopatra and Eurydices in the near future. Well, the uncle of the bride got drunk at the wedding and prayed publicly to Zeus that his niece would produce a legitimate Macedonian heir for Philip. Remember, Prince Alexander's mother, Olympias, was an epirote, married to join her ancestral lands with Macedon. She also, somewhat famously, loved her son but hated her husband. If Philip felt like a fully Macedonian prince would be a better heir and loved his new wife for real, then Alexander and Olympias were in very real danger. An illegitimate son with a 16-year head start was a genuine threat to the legitimate heir as a baby. Mother and son went on the lamb, fleeing to her family and Epirus, and then passing through a series of other minor Epirote vassal kingdoms to evade the feared assassins. But eventually, Philip got in touch, and basically said, What the hell are you doing? I'm not going to disown and kill Alexander. He's an adult with military and political training from the best tutors in the Greek world. I hired Aristotle for this boy, for God's sake. I'm old, covered in injuries, and the prince you think I want to replace him with doesn't even exist yet. 
Alexander is my heir. So Olympias and Alexander calmed down and went home. But Alexander remained in perpetual fear of being replaced. Oh, and of course, this all ignores Philip's actual first son by a completely different wife, called Philip Aridaeus, who was not really a contender for power because he was at least perceived as having some kind of psychological disability. Though, from the sources we have, it seems like a pretty mild condition, which is a bit odd. In early 338, Philip II was trying to arrange a marriage for Eridaeus with the daughter of Satrap Pixodarus over in Caria. Rumors swirled that this meant he was going to replace Alexander with Philip Eridaeus. So Alexander hired a Corinthian actor to go to Caria, pretend to be a Macedonian noble, and suggest that Pixodarus should marry his daughter to Alexander instead. King Philip caught wind of this, had the actor detained, and exiled four of Alexander's friends, who had dreamt up the scheme to other parts of the Macedonian Empire. He then told his heir apparent that he would never dream of marrying Alexander to a Carian. Alex could do so much better than that. Philip was probably feeling pretty good about himself when he went to his brother-in-law's wedding. It looked like he had finally gotten Alexander to stop freaking out about being replaced. The most recent report from Parmenion only showed continued success in Asia, and reported that the boy king on the eastern throne had been murdered. So it probably came as quite a shock when, in October of 336, one of Philip's own bodyguards repeatedly thrust a knife into his chest. The assassin ran for the exit, where hooded men were waiting with an extra horse. Philip's other bodyguards pursued, and the assassin's horse tripped, breaking its ankle. Rather than capturing or questioning the assassin, the other bodyguards plunged their spears in for the kill. As with most anonymous political murders, conspiracy theories have abounded ever since. Why did the bodyguards kill instead of capture? Who were those men with the getaway crew? What motivated the assassin? Presumably, money or bribes of status, but from who? Alexander? Olympias, Bagoas, Darius III, Artaxerxes IV, one of the Anatolian satraps, a jaded Macedonian noble. They've all been suggested. We will never know, but it set the stage for the amount of trust circulating in the aristocracy at Macedon going forward, which is to say none. Philip's death created the chaotic opening for Persian forces to expel Parmenion from Anatolia with misleading ease, while at just 20 years old, King Alexander III ascended the Macedonian throne. He was proclaimed king by the assembled nobles and soldiers at the wedding feast, moments after his father's death, and immediately had to deal with the process of consolidating power. The first order of business 
was executing his older cousin, the would-have-been King Amentus that Philip had spared when he seized power. Amentus had a legitimate claim and was a fully cognizant adult. Therefore, he was a threat and he had to go. Supposedly, under Olympias's orders, Philip's final wife, the aforementioned Cleopatra Eurydice, and her daughter Europa, were burned alive. Alexander was furious for this uncalled murder, because without a son to actually challenge him, Cleopatra posed no threat, nor did her two-year-old daughter. But like Parasatus before her, what was done was done, and the vengeful queen mother was still his mother. However, Alexander did execute Cleopatra's uncle, who had previously spoken out against him, when the uncle in question was discovered to be secretly in communication with the Athenian Demosthenes, arranging a revolt against Macedon. However, that did not save Macedon from mass revolt. Thebes, Athens, Thessaly, and northern Thrace all chafed under the new governments installed by Philip. They rose up. Alexander raised 3,000 cavalry and tore through Thessaly at speed, encircling the Thessalonian camp before they even realized he was in their country, forcing a surrender. From there, he raced to Corinth, making a pit stop at Athens where the Athenians realized they were outmatched and laid down their arms without a fight, before seeing Alex on to Corinth where the other members of the League were forcefully reminded that they were obliged to serve Macedon, regardless of its king. In 335 BCE, Alexander turned around and went north, battling Thracian rebels in the Chersonese before pressing deeper into inland Thrace and crossing the Danube to battle the Getai, a still-independent Thracian tribe which was defeated and became a Macedonian vassal. While on the eastern side of his empire, a revolt broke out in Illyria in the far west, so Alexander turned around and beat them into submission too. Then, Thebes and Athens changed their mind. After taking most of 335 to prepare for war, they rebelled and marshaled their troops. Had Illyria stayed peaceful, things might have been very different. But Alexander was already back in northwestern Greece by the time the rebels declared their intention. So braving the possibility of a winter battle... Alexander and the Macedonian army turned south and marched to Thebes. The two great cities of southeastern Greece had probably anticipated a winter season to continue planning and melding their forces together. They had no such luck. Thebes fought, and it was destroyed, both in the sense that they suffered heavy losses in a pitched battle outside the city wall, and in the very literal sense that Alexander kicked in the gates, ordered his men to remove anything of value, and then burnt Thebes to the ground. After centuries of dominating Boeotia, Theban lands were divided up between its neighbors, and the smoldering ruins were left as a reminder that nobody could challenge Macedon. Athens, understandably, surrendered without a fight, 
again. And with that, Alexander's empire was at peace. But if there's one thing Alexander III of Macedon couldn't stand, it was peace. Next time, worlds collide as Alexander prepares to enact his father's master plan and invade all of Asia. Until then, if you want more information about this podcast, go to historyofpersiapodcast.com. That's where you'll find things like my bio, the bibliography, podcast merchandise, and the Achaemenid family tree. You'll also find the support page where you can help out this project financially. That includes one-time donations, affiliate links, and most importantly, Patreon. Also found at patreon.com slash historyofpersia. Patreon offers a monthly subscription where you get access to things like bonus episodes, merchandise, discounts, ad-free listening, and reading recommendations. Subscription tiers range from just $1 to $20 and do a lot to keep the lights on. You don't have to spend money to support me, though. You can also do that by leaving a review on your podcast platform of choice, and most importantly of all, telling other people to listen. Independent podcasts live or die by word of mouth, so tell your friends, tell your family, and share on social media. You can find me at History of Persia on Twitter, or History of Persia Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Until the next time, thank you all so much for listening to History of Persia. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.